Good evening, and welcome to this Outbeat Extra. I'm Greg Moralia. One month ago tomorrow, the man who created the most powerful international civil rights symbol, the rainbow flag, passed away. Gilbert Baker, who was just 65 years old, passed peacefully in his sleep at his home in New York. In 1978, he created the rainbow flag right here in San Francisco. And tonight, we're going to talk with one of his good friends, a fellow activist, Ken Jones. You saw him on the ABC miniseries, When We Rise. And you know a bit about Ken's story, but there's just so much more to tell. He survived more challenge and tragedy in his life than just about anyone else I know. And he's still smiling and full of optimism. He was and still is an activist, and tonight he's going to share some advice on what we all need to be doing today. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, April 30th, 2017. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of April 30th, 2017. Journalists investigating the abuse of gay men in Chechnya have made a gruesome discovery. Respected newspaper Nova Gazeta originally reported that gay men were being held in two concentration-style camps in the region. Reports initially centered on two. However, journalists in the area now say they have uncovered evidence of an additional four prisons, meaning there are at least six prisons in the region holding people because of their sexual orientation. The newspaper also claims that men face torture in jail and are only released once their families offer bribes to police. Editors of the Russian newspaper now fear that their entire staff is at serious risk since having uncovered the gay purge taking place in Chechnya. In a statement released by the editors of the paper, they said Roman Katarov, Chechnya's leader, reportedly accused the newspaper of libel and declared it and the staff, quote, enemies of our faith and of our state, end quote. It comes after Britain's deputy foreign secretary revealed a terrifying threat from the president, saying that he would eliminate the LGBT community by the start of Ramadan. And here in the U.S., Wyoming Senator Mike Enzi is receiving heat from critics for a comment he made at Grable High School. While speaking to middle and high school students there, Enzi was asked about federal protections for LGBT people and what he's done to support Wyoming's LGBT community. In response, he reportedly said that people have a right to live and let live in Wyoming, but they shouldn't be surprised if others don't agree. He used the example of a man wearing a tutu to a bar who keeps getting in fights and was accused of saying that the man shouldn't be surprised because he was asking for it. Sarah Grossman, the communications manager for the Matthew Shepard Foundation, said that to tell someone they are asking for it by being themselves is a kind of rhetoric people use to undermine victims of sexual assault. And she added, to do so in front of students, also in Wyoming, the home of the infamous hate crime against Matthew Shepard, it's a kind of affront to all the work we've been doing for the last 20 years. Enzi's press secretary said the original answer to the question was much longer and focused primarily on anti-bullying, not just the LGBT community. He said it was a complete misunderstanding and that the senator was trying to teach a lesson about respecting people and anti-bullying. In a statement, Senator Enzi said that he regrets his poor choice of words and apologizes to anyone who is offended. And here locally, the Sonoma County Pride Organization is working hard to finalize plans for this year's 30th Pride Celebration, taking place June 2nd through the 4th. This year's celebration begins with a concert at the Grayton Resort and Casino on Friday, featuring Steve Grand and Billy Gilman. The Rise Up Rally, featuring 14 different speakers, takes place on Saturday from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Guerneville Lodge, followed that night by Outfest Shorts, featuring LGBT films at the Rio Theater. The Parade and Festival will end the weekend on Sunday, and we have all the details you need for Pride celebrations happening here in the North Bay and San Francisco on our website at OutbeatNews.com. Just look for the link in the center of the page. And finally, Positive Images and Social Advocates for Youth here in Sonoma County invites the entire LGBT community to an endless summer barbecue as a way to bring the community together and kick off the summer season. There'll be performances by DJ Shar and Bandros, and of course, barbecue. The food is free for all attendees, and there will be vegan options available. The LGBT BBQ takes place on Saturday, May 6th from 3 to 7 p.m. at Monroe Hall. That's at 1400 West College Avenue in Santa Rosa. You can learn more on the Positive Images website at pauseimages.org. For a calendar of LGBT news and events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. 
And for all the latest LGBT news headlines we're following, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. For KRCB's OutBeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. OutBeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Growing up as an African-American man in the 1950s and 60s here in the United States wasn't easy, even if you were straight, let alone a gay man. Being gay in the military wasn't easy either. And while ending up in San Francisco in the 1970s might have given one promise, the AIDS crisis of the 1980s wiped it all away. Ken Jones lived through all of this. He lost the loves of his life to war and AIDS, but still has a warm heart and the biggest smile you'd ever want to see. He's here tonight to talk more about his story and our LGBT civil rights movement. Ken, welcome to Outbeat Radio. Thank you so much, Greg. What a treat to have you here. And of course, we learned some of your story when we were watching the miniseries When We Rise, which aired on ABC earlier this year. And it picked up your life when you were in the Navy. But tell us about where you grew up and what it was like when you realized you were gay. Well, it's an interesting question, Greg. To put this into perspective, we're talking about the 50s. I'm not sure that the word gay was used. I'm not even sure homosexual was used. It was just not something that was ever, ever talked about. I think my first concern, uh, I was a sophomore in high school, and I just run the 50-yard dash in record time. And the person who came in second turned to me in front of the entire group and said, you run just like a girl. And he kind of put his hands up in the air and went trotting off like we see young girls um, run. And, you know, Greg, my I was never the same child. My life really changed. I felt exposed. I felt vulnerable. I felt lost. Mm. But I didn't know anything about gay. I just knew this is really effed up. You know what I mean? Sure. And where was this in the country? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, which is about eight minutes across the George Washington Bridge into New York City. So I really grew up in New York. Uh, It was kind of the place to go, uh, to hang out. Our school took uh, at least two trips to the big city every quarter. So uh, New York was kind of the place to run around. Mm -hmm. And also the first place that I began to see young kids like me who uh, were having fun growing up and making the best of what they could in the environment that they were. Right, right. Well, the 50s and 60s, as you mentioned, I mean, that was not a time when being gay was even really talked about. Uh, and there were absolutely no images. I'm, I've since read some books that could have shed light on it, but it was, uh, uh, you know, we were even cautious in the old days of checking out books at libraries that people might see that you were interested in the subject. Sure. Isn't that outrageous? Yeah. I mean, it must have been really difficult, too. What messaging did you get from your church? Were you hearing messaging at that time about gay people? Absolutely none, Greg. No, absolutely nothing. Well, I guess that's better than at least hearing condemning messages that, you know, so many churches are spewing today. (laughs) That's true. That's true. We had a good fortune. Again, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. And when Kennedy was running for Congress, that's uh, Jack. President JFK, was running for the Congress, he visited our church. And I I, I thought that was kind of uh, significant. The church had always been a place of uh, kind of organizing, and um, it had a a tremendous impact on me indirectly, if that makes sense. Sure. That must have been quite an experience, particularly looking back now, uh, having seen him there in your church. It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and when did you enter the military? I entered in 1969. I graduated from high school in 1967. And between 67 and 69, I must have had at least 18 jobs. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
to put it into perspective, Greg, I had these great jobs. You know, I was actually the, uh, in the old days, they called them Girl Fridays. But I was the assistant to the advertising director of Town & Country magazine. Really? Yeah. I mean, my mother was a caterer. And so she had significant uh, contacts in New York of movers and shakers. So uh, I had a great job. And being in New York, I felt compelled to have the two martini lunch. That's kind of the image of TV in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. You weren't living unless you had a two martini lunch. Of course. Well, if you're 17 or 18 and you have a two martini lunch, you're not going to be very effective the next three hours at work. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> but I had a great time and they were wonderful experiences. And so what drew you into the military? Was it the draft or did you go voluntarily? Uh, I needed to. I needed something to happen with my life. Um I think my parents had tried just everything to try and direct me in some path. Um, to put this in perspective, when we're going to go back to the kid telling me that I ran like a, a little girl, from that moment, I was full of self-hatred, self-loathing. I just had no ambition. I had no life. I had no direction. And that's part of the problem, Greg, when you grow up primarily an only child. You don't have someone to process this stuff and say, you know, maybe you're taking it too serious. So I was a pretty helpless, lost, and full of despair. And uh, for me, the Navy was it. You know, once you get through boot camp, boot camp was totally uh, hell. But it had its purpose. And its purpose was to strip all of me out of this and become the sailor, which is, uh, I really enjoyed. There's something about being at sea, being in the company of other men, uh, doing important work, and partying when you come into the home port that I found just uh, really exciting. And I would have liked to have stayed in the Navy forever, but uh, I was kind of, at any moment, I could be busted for being gay or even associating with known homosexuals, and I would receive a dishonorable discharge. Well, you know, Greg, I had three good conduct medals. Uh, 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 You know, a dishonorable discharge just wasn't in the making. So I decided to get out while I could with an honorable discharge and all of my good conduct medals. Wonderful. And in the miniseries, it showed, you know, just a very brief glimpse, relatively speaking, into your life in the military and a relationship. Did you meet a lot of gay men while you were serving? Um, No one was out. No one would ever, ever, even with your closest associates, you would never say, I am gay. Right. Too risky. Since I've been out of the military and in San Francisco, I've seen four or five faces that I recognize from uh, military days, which is kind of odd because, you know, it's such you're at war and uh, serving. You're at such risk. You're so vulnerable. And there's this intimacy that forms with other people who are sharing this experience with you. Um I and Michael, we didn't think we were gay, Greg. Hmm. We just thought that we were two guys who had met our life partners. We were in love. And we were making plans to spend the rest of our lives together. Wow. Well, it, I mean, that's, that's how it works, right? You, don't, you, may not, you may not connect with the word, but you know who you love. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you came to San Francisco at a time when, you know, the movement was really just getting started. And... As inclusive as I think we try to be, there was a lot of racism even within the gay community, a lot of exclusion. Talk about your experience with that. It was a little jarring for me because I had a stereotype of uh, liberal, San Francisco, progressives all under one roof. And um, I think during that time, we were having a national discussion. Jesse Jackson was running for president, and he had created what's called the Rainbow Coalition. 
And now we would call it kind of the rise and resist movement. It's about people sharing, even when they're not at risk, they stand up for others. Mm-hmm. That we're all in this together. And that the bigger we can make the rainbow, the more power we have, the more influence we have, uh, the more uh, changing the world becomes a reality. Mm-hmm. And so I was a little bit surprised um, when I first felt the pangs of racism in the Castro. And in the 60s, even the Castro was, it was a strange entity. Uh, it wasn't the normal hangout of gay men. It was kind of gay men who had left Polk Street or were not particularly comfortable in the south of marketplaces. And um, there were a couple of places you get in, no problem. There were others that uh, would require you to show more identification than you would possibly have with you going to a bar, uh, to ask for four or five pieces of ID, and then to have those discredited because maybe your mustache isn't right, or maybe uh, this isn't right. It was an important moment for me and I think other gay men of color. Greg, we were coming at it. We had just received word as young gay men that we were young, gifted, and black. And we were proud, and uh, we just heard Jesse Jackson talking about his dream. And so we were the generation that bought into the dream and thoroughly expected to be full participants in North American life, hope, and opportunity, and to be shut out of a bar um, was unacceptable. Yeah. To us, and by this time, enough of these young black gay kids were also studying law. And so we knew that, you know, buddy, you can't do this very much often, mm-hmm. very much longer. And so we did form a boycott with uh, a group called the Black and White Men Together of San Francisco. They were really instrumental in providing the bodies that would be outside of the bars uh, with picket signs. And uh, I can even remember a couple of bars where people were ignoring our picket signs and we laid our bodies down on the ground and made them step over us to get into the bar to have a good time. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of warfare that, You know, it's been a slow haul, Greg, and I have to tell you, there are still moments when I'm in the Castro that I feel not so connected. Uh, We were recently talking about the Gilbert Baker gathering, which was really powerful. And as I was looking at the photographs afterwards, I went, oh, my God, I look like I'm the only man of color in the whole uh, demonstration. So there are still moments where we know that there is work that we have to do. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, I came out pretty late in life. Uh, I always knew I was gay, but I didn't, because I worked in law enforcement, wasn't really able to come out until 2004. And I never went to the Castro, but I do remember going there with a friend the first time and visiting the Pendulum, doing the Castro crawl, but being introduced to the Pendulum. And I thought, <laughs> well, why is there one bar that is just sort of the unofficial dedicated place for African-American men to go and everybody else goes to the others for for a community that is supposed to be standing up for everything that's inclusive and everything that that stands for. I was surprised in 2004 about how much separation there was. And then of course there was that whole controversy about the owner of the bar closing it down because he didn't want it identified as a black bar crazy to me but i agree with you i think there still is that's i think that's a big struggle that we still have in our community uh and i was there that night uh and i agree with you there was not a lot of diversity in that crowd it's pretty white well it just shows how much more work we have to do that's for sure yeah we do now you can i mean there's been tremendous progress greg But then the other part, and this is now I'm 66, and I'm starting to develop a little bit of wisdom. And uh, I'm looking back at that Equal Rights Amendment that we all were 
just sure that this was the legislation that was going to do it. And what I have learned, Greg, is that the legislation cannot change people's hearts. People's hearts change when we are present, when we are authentic, and when we are transparent. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. The one thing I've learned a lot, and, and really it was sort of the foundation for my getting the guts to finally come out, was what I used to hear from Matthew Shepard's mom, Judy Shepard. Uh, she was an advocate for the hate crimes legislation, but she said that's not what's going to change this world. It's not going to be a law that's going to cause people to think differently. It's going to be coming out and sharing your stories. And yeah. that's how we change minds and hearts. Yes. For sure. Yes. You and had Greg, a, that's what I'm hoping we have done with When We Rise, is to begin a conversation to change people's hearts. Well, and it's a powerful tool for that, for sure. Uh, both in terms of... of telling a story, but also making visible some amazing people who were at the very beginning of this incredible civil rights movement. You had a chance to meet some of these folks. I want to start with Jose Saria. Tell me about Jose. What did he teach you? Our relationship was a little different than we saw in the movie. Jose was a very good friend of a very good friend of mine. And so when I saw him, he was not decked out in his... Uh, in her shining armor, but just another older gay man who had a heart of bringing people together and making everyone just feel comfortable. He kind of took me under his wings and just made sure that I knew enough people, showed me some problem areas. Uh, these are the people you want to watch out for, hon, and this is... Uh, what you do and you don't do. Yeah, yeah. It was very, very kind of almost motherly welcoming you to his city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he made it, he made it his city, right? Uh, yes, he did. <laughs> he really did. Uh, and he was also a military vet. That's correct. Did you feel some connection with that as well? I, I did subsequently, yeah. And so was Harvey Milk. Right. Yeah. Well, and Gilbert Baker, too. He served in the Army. Uh, and you were good friends with him. Talk about your relationship. Uh, Gilbert and I were temporary workers in a typing pool. And uh, he was really there to do his work for uh, the parade committee. Um, he was kind of a person <laughs> that you didn't necessarily accomplished much for us during the day, but he certainly did a lot for the parade. And he was one of the people who were instrumental in encouraging me to come to a parade organizing meeting. And so I am always so grateful now for that experience. You know, I saw him at the Castro Street Theater uh, during the screening, and afterwards we embraced in the hallway and we were both crying a little and we embraced and he whispered in my ear and he said you know we made it girl we did this and um that's that's the memory i have that was his gift to me and it's kind of almost where my relationship with him started we did this that's a beautiful tribute i loved when you told me first told me that story and i really loved hearing it again so talk about being part of that organizing committee. Um, but, you know, Greg, I was, again, the piece of chocolate in a sugar bowl <laughs> and kind of forced into a leadership position. And uh, it's tremendously stressful. It's, it's um, stressful and it also encouraged me to hone my skills around multicultural coalition building. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. That's the expression we use. And when we find ourselves in difficult situations, we're there for a purpose. And mine really was to begin to, to, to talk about multiculturalism and how we could do it in San Francisco. What do you think you were able to teach the people that you were talking to? Number one is that I lead with love, Greg. I think anyone who ever has worked with me will talk to you about my leadership 
with my heart. I'm really a touchy-feely kind of guy. And I just want to know that you feel okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay. So I spend a lot of time in just nurturing people. And at the same time, teaching. Um, and at the same time, being an example of how we do this thing. In terms of multicultural diversity, and I find this very interesting, Greg, in the early days of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, and I was one of the first uh, paid staff at that foundation, we did a number of diversity workshops, multicultural workshops, as we began to make that and is turning into a broader discussion. Mm-hmm. But we were kind of a ragtag group of gay activists. And all of a sudden, as gay activists, we were being challenged around being gay in that environment because it impacted people who were also not gay. And so we found ourselves needing to make room for the participation of women. And we needed to make room for the broader participation of uh, people of color and the disabled community. And Greg, we spent what seems like a great deal of time working on multiculturalism. But two Sundays ago, a group of eight of us who went through that experience, and this is my point, when you go through that kind of experience, it's for the moment, but it lasts forever. Mm-hmm. Those of us who went through that diversity training together, 40 years later, Greg, we are connected. Our hearts are connected. There's something about being vulnerable, taking risks, and coming out of it with uh, a refreshed heart that makes all the difference in the world. That makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, and I think it's a unique but, but extremely powerful experience that you describe as well. I, you know, one of the things that struck me about When We Rise and just learning the, the stories, I knew the names and the stories of people individually, but I had no idea that all of those stories converged in sort of the same decade. And I thought it was, I'll say, miraculous how people like you and Roma and Cleve and Gilbert and then eventually... Harvey all came together to create this movement that has done some extraordinary things. That's wonderful to hear, Greg. And when we were going through the experience, we were not so greatly received. The people that you just mentioned were considered kind of really, really leftist and not the centrists who could work with. You know, it's, it's interesting in our development as a community, Greg, and what how the pendulum swings in terms of how we see ourselves in relation to power and uh, the human rights of people in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Well, getting back to your story, uh, you know, as I look back on it now, just again, from getting a glimpse of it, and it's really just a glimpse in that miniseries, one of the things I was left with was how much you endured. I don't know anybody else in my life who could have survived all of the challenges from you know, a horrific loss while you were in the military and then coming to San Francisco and struggling with trying to find place and community. And then the AIDS crisis hit. How did you do that? How did you survive that? Uh, Greg, my answer is uh, I, I did it by the grace of God. And I didn't know that I would survive it. I did not know all of those challenges you presented were just devastating to me. Um, And I I often say that, you know, the pieces of my broken heart are just distributed across uh, the entire country. Mm. I, I think what we saw, Greg, because there's been wonderful joy in that life as well. But I think Hollywood kind of like the, the stories that uh, were uh, um, the saddest. And when we were talking, Cleve Jones and I were having a discussion a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, Ken, the one thing that's really missing from the series is your infectious laughter. He says it, the whole show was kind of like a drag or pull down, and people don't understand or know how much I enjoy laughing and how I think that that laughing has uh, helped me to heal and also my 
my coming to grips with my own spirituality, Greg, it's it's been hell for me um, because I think that's the way the system is designed. But uh, I'm finally at that place where I understand spirituality as opposed to religion. And I, I understand that all of my life experiences have been for a reason. I have grown to be uh, tremendously uh, strong. And um, it's only because of my search for God and my feeling for so many years, Greg, that God has turned his back on me. Mm-hmm. And although I was doing everything possible to show my love for him, that uh, I was such a loser that not even he uh, could help me. Uh, ever since I was exposed again as that 12-year-old, I had prayed to God, please change me. Please change me. I don't want to be like this. I don't know what I want to be, but I know that I don't want to be like this. Please change me. Please change me. And over the years, I've learned that God had no intention of changing me, that he had created me just like I am, Greg, to be doing just what I'm doing right now, which is being present, authentic, and transparent. Um yeah, I think that kind of mm. gets at it. And and I I can't tell you how much I need God every single second of my day. I, I say it's like glory to glory. Um I went through a period of about four years where my mother had been diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's. And one of the things she would do is call me every couple of minutes and ask me to pray for her. There's something about old black women that just love when their sons can pray for them. And of course, I'd be at work or I'd be doing whatever I'm doing, but I would always stop and pray for her. And for the longest time, I thought that she was just calling me every minute because she had forgotten that we just talked. Mm -hmm. What I have learned is how that prayer was for that minute and that she needed my prayers in this brand new minute. And so I got a sense of, uh, of what it is to need God from moment to moment in your life. Well, I think one of the greatest tragedies of homophobia is the struggle that so many people, men and women go through, gay men and women go through, where they're forced to reconcile their faith that they've grown up with, with their personal discovery of who they are. And they're forced to make a choice that either they reject who they are and maintain allegiance to the faith that they grew up with, or reject their faith and pursue their own identity. And we lose a lot. Yes, Uh, we do. We lose a lot. And I think that's one of the horrible manifestations of homophobia, particularly in religion. Yes, it is, Greg. And it's also a part, I don't know if you're noticing this or not, but there's this air of rage that people are feeling all over America. Uh, The thing about uh, rage while driving and the expressions of rage and just, um, it's very unsettling. And I have come to believe that our spirituality is calling us, but because of our bad experiences and what we heard and experienced in the church, we don't want to explore that avenue. So there's this tremendous conflict because your spirit is saying, come to me, but your reality has not allowed that to happen. Does that make any sense? It it absolutely does. Well, you know, you've seen a lot of history happen, and I think arguably, at least in my time, the last eight years in terms of gains in, in our LGBT civil rights movement has really been tremendous. What's it's ex- been tremendous, and just with the whip of a pen, this new administration is just taking every single one of them back. It's the most amazing thing to sit here and witness. But I'm encouraged because I heard Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader saying yesterday, she says, you know, the pendulum swings. And that was her entire thought. The pendulum swings. Does that give you comfort? It does. It does, Greg. Uh, Things are, you know, it's not looking good for us right now on some level with this new administration. And 
the rights and human dignity that we've all come to to own, um, it's like at every opportunity it's being taken away from us. And I am encouraged by groups like uh, Rise and Resist and Black Lives Matter. We have to do something. And you're right, Greg, it's time to channel this rage into something to save us. Well, I think one of the tough parts or one of the challenges of this uh I'll call it the new movement or the, the reemergence of the movement is that there are a lot of particularly young people who have not lived through what you have lived through. They've not witnessed uh, all that it took to bring the gains in the last eight years. They have no appreciation for that whatsoever. And so the threats, they, they're not seeing the threats. Uh, I know. I know we've done such a good job that they don't feel the threat. And that's, that's, that's problematic. Because the threats are still there. The walls are still there. In many states, you can still lose your job. Yeah, two-thirds of the country, that's the case. Uh, you know, I think there was this great sense of gain with marriage equality, and on so many levels, that's true. It was a huge gain, and it set the stage for uh, everything else. But we haven't, we haven't accomplished anything else. And the idea that you can be married on a Sunday and then go show up to work and be fired on Monday... In the mm-hmm. in the majority of states in this country is unacceptable, yeah. but but there's still there's still energy around trying to overturn the marriage decision. So those threats are really real, and I just don't think enough people that see and recognize that threat. And I'm not sure how we work through that either, Greg. I I think that some of the younger kids, and I don't want to stereotype them, but so many of them. Um, just want to fit in. They don't necessarily want to identify as gay or be in gay bars or gay restaurants. And that's a part of our reality that is changing. Sure, sure. So so think about the movement today. Uh, what should we be doing? How should we reconstruct it to make it effective in protecting what we have uh, from loss and earning those additional gains that we need? I believe that a consequence of this uh, Trump generation is that, and it's amazing to me, in 2017, to recognize community organizing. It was a lot different in the 70s and 80s. Just the social media adds another whole dimension to our community organizing and community education. And uh, I am hopeful that this next generation, they're going to come through, Greg. I know I'm seeing this next generation at marches. Um, well, the interesting thing is so many of the young kids now are biracial. Mm-hmm. And so this, as it's just a natural occurrence that the biracial kids don't understand the racism thing. And they are turning out in great numbers. They do know how to demonstrate. And I'm just loving how they've kind of changed the way demonstrations are done. Now there's so much more musical, so much more rhythm. Uh, there's so much more life than uh, the seriousness that we brought to it. But the demonstrations are important. Uh, do you think that that people need to still be out and visible and in public and carrying the signs and marching as you did? It is now more important than ever. You know, we've got to demonstrate our, our, our numbers, um, and we're doing that well. And, you know, we're having some wonderful moments. That Women's March thing just totally added another dimension to, to what it means in terms of activism. And uh, we're looking at it occur all over America. And it's, it's exciting to watch because we've got to do something. So it's not just about having a presence on social media. It's about still making yourself visible. What about pride this year? What, you know, as I'm thinking about opportunities coming up to make ourselves visible, how should we be using the 2017 Pride celebration uh, to get our messaging out? Well, I understand there's a great deal of conversation as we speak. Actually, I've seen a couple of um, messages during our conversation about gay pride in June 
in San Francisco. Um, the city of Los Angeles has decided to not really have pride, but instead it's going to be a, a uh, rise and resist movement. And so here in San Francisco, I understand there's some discussion about the rise and resist movement being the second contingent in the gay pride on the last Sunday in June in San Francisco. Uh, the first group is always the Dykes on Bikes. Right. And then they want to have a contingent of uh, rise and resist. And also, Greg, what I am a little concerned with is on the 12th of June, most big cities are having their rise and resist marches. And I'm certainly hoping that we will do something here in San Francisco because the media will be there. They are certainly expecting to see something from San Francisco on the 10th of June as it is happening all over the country. So I hope that we'll be able to um, not miss an ideal opportunity. I had a conversation just before our conversation with someone who was a little bit concerned about the resources. And I reminded them, Greg, that in New Orleans, there are three or four parades a day. And surely we can uh, coordinate two in a month. I think it's doable and I think we have to do it. And um, it's our opportunity as LGBTQ and our allies to let the nation know we're in this thing with you, that we're all under attack here. Unions, we're with you. School systems, we're with you. Workers, we're with you. We are, we are you, and we stand together with you. So um, I'm looking forward to a June just full of uh, celebrations and, and pride, mm. and I think it's so important that we not let people think for a moment that the battle is over. It is not over. We are still under attack. The finish line is not even in sight, I would argue. <laughs> yeah. So talk about life today, Ken. Uh, what are you doing? <laughs> Where's it taking you next? <laughs> well, I just uh, termed out of my um, primary gig. I was on the, uh, what is it called now? It's the police citizen review board after the shooting of the guy at the uh, Fruitvale station I was part of the formation of this official body to um, help BART um, monitor and change its police behaviors and policies Greg I've been through most of the training that all the BART police have been through it's been a wonderful experience and uh, we've been talking about how they can do their job and keep us safe and at the same time um, when we send our kids off to school or work we want to be sure they're going to come home alive and so we've been intensely working with police officers and the leadership to help change the culture because things are changing about law enforcement and what's important uh, about law enforcement. But now I'm uh, working with brides and grooms from all over the world, Greg, who decide that they want to get married here in San Francisco. About half of them want to be married in City Hall now that it's been... Uh, totally redone and decked out. It's just a wonderful space. And the other half want the uh, Golden Gate Bridge as a backdrop. And I work with these couples to create their own unique wedding ceremony in the city and county of San Francisco. And it is just great for me to be around that kind of energy. Love is a great thing. Remember? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that that's and I love being around that energy and working with people from all over the country. It's so interesting the cultural stuff uh, that's going on. I'm having the ball. I'm having just a great time. Good for I you. I thought this would be more of a quiet time for me, but it's not, and uh, I, I, I'm very very happy. And what about life in the movement? How are you staying connected and involved with that? Um, you know, Greg, I'm in far more than I thought I would. 
um, but I'm 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 making maximum use of uh, Facebook and Facebook messengering. And yeah, I am still in many, many conversations. Um, yeah. Terrific. I guess I had become an old, uh, what we used to call in the old days, a mover and shaker. <laughs> That's great. Where can people go to follow your work? How can they get connected with you? Uh, actually, my Facebook account is really the place to be. Great. And we'll put a link on our website at outbeatnews.com. You can go there and get connected with Ken Jones. Yesterday, I hit the milestone, Greg, I, and I, I'm wondering how long it can stay there. I was at 1,000 friends, exactly 1,000. Well, that is a milestone. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. I think the more people that watch When We Rise, the more people are going to uh, look for you out there. That's great. And share some of the most wonderful stories in the world, Greg. I am hearing from people who are impacted by this on just a number of levels. The veterans, I'm particularly moved by all the parents who have gone with their transgender kids through the high school setting, and some are now in college. And I'm from the movement where... You know, when we first started talking about transgenders, it was trying to get them off the streets. Their, their life goals were kind of limited, and it was kind of just about survival and having shelter. And all of a sudden, there's possibility and hope. And these parents have stuck by their kids, and uh, they're going through what other um, college students are going through. It's a wonderful story of, of the parents who have supported their kids. Ten-year-olds who understand transgender and are willing to go through it with their classmates. Mm -hmm. It's the exact opposite of my experience. You know what I mean? Yep. And that they take their entire class through their transition with them. It's like, wow, this is absolutely beautiful. Gives you hope, doesn't it? It does. It does that all of us can be real participants, all of us, equal participants in the American dream and North American life, hope, and opportunity. Greg, we can do this. I know we can. Well, I appreciate your optimism. Uh, but more importantly, I really just want to say thank you for all of the sacrifices, uh, blood, sweat, and tears that you've given over the years that made my coming out in 2004 much easier. Oh, well, I appreciate that so much, Greg. Thank you so much. Everywhere freaks and hairies, dykes and fairies, tell me where is sanity. Tax the rich, feed the poor, till the hot don't rich no more. Keeps on breeding, nation bleeding, still more feeding economy. Oh. Life is funny, skies are sunny, bees make honey, who needs money, monopoly?
Finally tonight, a dedication to a drag queen, a sister of perpetual indulgence, the artist and the activist Gilbert Baker. Here he is talking about the creation of the rainbow flag in 2013. I went from being a, you know, a pretty dumb kid in Kansas, you know, growing up in the 50s and all of the, you know, the bomb scare in Eisenhower and it's very Republican and straight there and always feeling very outcast, feeling very different, always. Um, I went from that place to a place of liberation. So I went from, you know, Kansas to San Francisco at the at the very moment that gay rights was exploding. So for my journey, you know, I didn't have to, you know, fortunately go kill people in Vietnam, although I served in that era. Um, my journey was one of liberation. I came to Flags because I was really not cut out to be a fashion designer, truthfully. Um, as much as I love sewing and making clothes and, and fashion and all of the design and all of that, um, first of all, I lived in San Francisco. Well, if you want to be a fashion designer, you live in New York or you live in Paris or Rome or Milan. So I was in the wrong town. But I was in the right town for gay rights. So even though I, I wasn't able to pursue my dreams of you know being the next you know, Yves Saint Laurent or Halston, um, I was in the right town and I had the right skill to be able to uh, create banners and really to work on the whole uh, visual presence of protest. And that ultimately led to making the rainbow flag. Well, the rainbow came about um, 1978. Um, in 1976 was the bicentennial of America, the 200th anniversary of the USA. and. American flags were on everything. It was on clothes, it was on fashion. It was, the American flag was celebrated in a way that you couldn't help but notice it on everything. And it gave me the idea that we could have a flag, gay people, that our tribe could have a flag. And Because even though we're not a country and a nation, we're kind of a people. And I thought a flag is very useful as a symbol in terms of it proclaims power, it says something, it isn't a word or a logo like a gizmo graphically. It's something that can be interpreted a million different ways, a flag. Rainbow came from nature. I mean, this is San Francisco, or, you know, it's a psychedelic era, it's all about color, we're a very colorful people. And then on a symbolic level, what I liked and what I think is still resonant is that it's all the colors. It's the idea of inclusion and the idea of using uh, something from nature to represent that our sexuality is a human right, whatever color that may be. When the first flags went up on the flagpoles, uh, Gay Freedom Day 1978, June 25th, right that first moment of the first flags, which were huge and handmade, um, I knew it was going to change me. I knew this was some, that this was the most important thing I would ever do. It was like, like a bolt of lightning went right through my head, and I knew no matter what happened in my life, that this moment, that moment, would be really important in terms of, of what was going to happen to me. And it and it, it turned out that way. But it first started in San Francisco, and then it was you know New York and L.A., and it spread and it spread and it spread. And by 1994. Uh, when I made the mile-long flag for Stonewall 25 in New York City, by, not, by that time, which is what, only 16, 17 years later, uh, it was around the world. Yeah, it started with something that I'm making with my hands and you know, sewing it, and it's beautiful, but it became a phenomenon that, that the world um, embraced. Yes, of course, anyone can be an activist, but it's not, it's not easy. And what does that mean, being active? I mean, I think, first of all, is you have to be free yourself. You have to have your own uh, core values, and you have to have some courage. You have to have some steel, and that's really hard for a lot of people. They can't come out, their family situations. So what, to whatever degree that people can be, first of all, honest with themselves, that's, that's the beginning of being an activist, is knowing who you are. You bet it's dangerous, and that's why it takes a lot of love. I think you have to have people around you that can, you can't do it by yourself. You have to build bridges, you have to have a loving environment, loving friends, people that you trust and support to work together to achieve it. I just don't think that individuals are able to achieve as much as the mass.
And here with me today is the illustrious Cleve Jones to present on behalf of the Pride Celebration Committee and our community the first ever Gilbert Baker Pride Founders Award given to someone who has made a historic contribution to our movement for our rights and our equality, symbolized by the everlasting symbol of the rainbow flag. So Gilbert, it is our pleasure to present on behalf of the Pride Celebration Committee and all the fabulous people out here today with the first ever award named after you, the Gilbert Baker Pride Founders Award. So I want all you to know that the first rainbow flag made its debut here in San Francisco for Pride at the Gay Freedom, Gay Freedom Day celebration in 1978. The same year that Harvey Milk stood right here and announced to the crowd, I want to recruit you. Gilbert was there. Cleve was there. Now all of you are standing here in this sacred spot with our rainbow flag, so please take home with you today the symbol of the rainbow flag and know that it is your symbol, it is your equality, and it is your community that it represents. So hold it proud. And Gilbert, on behalf of everyone, thank you for this historic contribution. I hope hearing the story of Ken Jones and Gilbert Baker tonight has inspired you to get involved in our movement, to become an activist for something you're passionate about. Join us next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. You're broken down and tired Of living life on the merry-go-round And you can't find a fighter But I see it in you, so we can walk it out Move mountains We gon' walk it out and move mountains And I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day I'll rise up, I'll rise unafraid I'll rise up, and I'll do it a thousand times again and I'll rise up, I like the waves, I rise up, in spite of the ache, I rise up, and I'll do it a thousand times again, you, Silence is quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we'll take the world to its feet Move I won't take Bring it to its feet That we have each other
the air I will rise a thousand times 